Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In today's episode, we visit with Mark Jan Pohl, author of The Brother Silver, a sweeping novel exploring the shame, guilt, anger, and fear of betrayal, which distort the relationship that survivors of childhood trauma have with other people in their past. The story begins with brothers Jules and Leon Silver sitting helpless as their mother tries and fails to complete suicide. This act is the catalyst for the book's tightly woven timeline of Jules and Leon's lives. The poet Sparrow X had this to say about the book. The brother Silver employs a fevered, poetic-laced prose to careen through the nine dimensions of American dysfunction. Like that of a Jewish Jack Kerouac, Jan Pohl's writing has gyrating vibrato folds, wonderfully dissonant cliffs and dips, notes expanding, subsiding, colliding, waning, and waxing. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, LandisWade.com, and I'd love to have you visit. For all things related to the podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website, charlotteriespodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you. That takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a collection of author-hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience. And you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. You can also check out our Patreon page. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters. For just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show, where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. But enough with this prologue. Let's meet today's author. Mark, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> How do you like that? The Jewish Jack Kerouac. <laughs> well, I hope I can live up to that. Yeah, that's nice. It's kind of, this book was kind of a road trip, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. The, the second half is completely a, lo- a road trip. And the first half is kind of a lead up to that road trip. Yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations on the book. Thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. you. And, uh, you know, this is... Um, it's an interesting book. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, your previous books were uh, poetry, music from words, uh, Cuba States of Mind, Not the Cruelest Month. That, that right. was sort of a flip book of poems. The other was a debut poetry collection. Um, so what inspired you to move from poetry to this uh, novel? So it's really interesting. It's kind of like the arc of my life. 
I originally thought I would be a novelist. And then somehow I got into TV news and uh, I uh, then uh, got lost prose and uh, started writing poetry. So what happened was uh, the first chapter of uh, The Brothers Silver, I wrote as a poem. Then I let it sit for literally four or five years and I went back to it and I looked at it and I started uh, working it out as prose instead of poetry and all the poetic elements seemed to gain power. And so it just took off from there. I rescued some short stories I had begun uh, in my 20s and 30s. and got, I, like, I like that. <laughs> I, re I rescued some short <laughs> Well, they, they, were, they were good plots and great ideas, but boy, was the writing bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But, uh, so I rescued them and got them published, and I was able to complete The, the Brothers Silver um, and uh, got that published. And yeah. now I'm working on a third novel. That's great. Well, your, your background and your writing style, just a minute, you, you've published more than 1,800 articles in newspapers and magazines. You were right. a past president of the board of the magazine Jewish Currents. You're a former TV news reporter. I presume your style of writing for TV was a whole lot different than what we've got here. Yes, yes. And it really, it, it really taught me how to write uh, tersely, which is the essence of all good poetry. Poetry always knocks out the non-essential. And I think great prose also knocks out the non-essential. Um, uh, it's harder in prose to get to a point where you don't want to remove a word. Mm. Uh, and so TV news uh, kind of prepared me for that. And also every time you learn to write a certain genre, it helps you next time you learn, just like learning one language a foreign language helps you to improve your English. Mm, that's a good point. Well, one of the writing styles here that you've employed, uh, just talk about point of view for just a minute, right. because you've got 12 chapters in the book here, and uh, I think there must be 10 different voices. How many voices do we have in the book here? Yeah, well, there are, there are 10 different voices. Yeah. You, you could interpret it to be nine, but I, I think there's 10 too. But Okay. <laughs> well, we'll talk, talk about that style for a minute because I, I've, I've written uh, several books in third person close and I like jumping from one you know, head to another, but you've actually done it in these uh, chapter formats. Uh, did that come to you as the original conception of the idea or did it kind of unfold? Okay, so it, it's interesting. I've always liked books, novels that had changing points of view. My favorite novel as a boy was Treasure Island, mm. where you have Jack uh, narrating for most of the novel, and then all of a sudden it turns it, it he turns it over, and Long John Silver narrates, and Long John Silver tells us stuff that the boy Jack doesn't know. And that's the essence of what I think you get when you use different points of view. Every point of view only knows what it knows. And that creates ironies, things that some characters know and other characters don't know, things and many things that the reader knows that the other char that the characters don't know. 
and, and I think in that iron that irony is is a rich load to mine. And this is why I did uh, like very much in this book to use different points of view. Hmm. Uh, also, I like using unreliable narrators. So chapter two, which I'm going to read from in a little bit, uh, is a great example. You can't really believe anything this guy says. <laughs> He's such a despicable person. Yeah. So when you, when you have an unreliable narrator, it could leave the, the readers out in the dark unsure but when you have several unreliable narrators then the readers know everything that the characters don't and i think it adds a richness and a depth to the, both the characters and the uh readers enjoyment of them yeah we're actually going to do two readings today two short right. readings to show those different points of view and we're going to do that first one in just a second but before we do there's sort of a frenetic pace to this book when i picked it up and started the first uh chapter i guess they're chap you call them chapters some of them are right. pretty long chapters but yeah you know, it, it, it's 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 uh it's kind of a roller coaster almost i mean and, the, and and there's a lot's happening and a lot of movement and you know it's staccatos in some respects but you're moving how, when you're editing something like this how do you go back and decide what you're going to cut because you have a lot of different uh you know, visions and activities and thoughts and everything that's coming into play to show the character of these of these people. Okay, so the first thing is in saying something clever, often you use a vocabulary that the speaker in that chapter wouldn't use. So got to cut all that stuff out, right? And then the next thing is that sometimes there's something beautiful you've written that doesn't fit in anymore. You have to cut that all out. And, you know, uh, someone once said, you got to kill your darlings. Mm -hmm. uh, some independent filmmakers said, you don't really have a good film or know you have a good film until you've cut out something you love. Mm -hmm. And so you do that. And then there are inconsistencies. So you cut that out. Finally, there's there can be just uh, plot lines that you decide you don't want to develop. Mm -hmm. So you cut that out or you ended up not developing. Right. Or you cut that out because, you know, there are a lot of plot lines in this book that start in one chapter and finish mm -hmm. several chapters later. Right. And just so to set up this first reading with this unreliable narrator, it comes in a, in a chapter after the first one. And in the first one, we've got Jules and Leon Silver. Just Let's just talk briefly about them. Jules is, is an older brother. Leon's the younger brother in this first chapter. Their mother is sort of, you know, stumbling and bumbling and you know there's, she, there's no sort of about it she's yeah. mentally ill yeah and, and and you get right away a picture of a of a father who's abs is, is the father the narrator in this what we're going to read here in just a minute in the yeah. second chapter yes exactly yeah. so let's talk about those three characters jules leon and the father that'll set up this right. first read yeah right okay so uh so the family dynamic is that the younger brother leon uh, looks like the father and has the same kind of intelligence as the father. Uh, when I say same kind, they're great at math and science and chess and those kind of things. So he's the father's favorite. Uh, and uh, Jules responds, you know, with uh, jealousy, of course. But 
the father is mostly absent in that first chapter, has left the family and basically abandoned them to their mother, who is talented in her own way, but very mentally ill. And Jules, as the older brother, feels a responsibility. And so he's got these tuggings uh, versus Leon. Leon is a great mystery, extremely intelligent, but much more affected by the mental illness and the, the d- divorce in a way that makes him unable to function and thrive in the world. Uh, yeah, and in, that, and in that first chapter, you know, you've got the father sticking the separation papers in front of the mother, making her sign it. She doesn't want to yeah. sign it. She's drinking. She's trying to kill herself. Um, there's even a kind of, maybe even kind of a rape scene in there where he, you know, he's tired of it. He hits her, he takes her to the bedroom and the kids are right. sort of seeing and watching and all this is going on around them. And, and often not understanding. Right. Cause Jules walks in at the aftermath of that rape and we understand what happened, but he doesn't. Right. That's, yeah. I have to tell you, that was very tough to write. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, let, let's talk about, because this father who I had sort of hoped had sort of gone out of the picture for good. He, went, you know, <laughs> he, he shows back he up and right. he, he comes back in the second chapter and you're starting to see him. Um, uh, let's talk about him and then let's do it to set up our first reading here. Good. Okay. So uh, the second, the first chapter ends with Jules and Leon sitting, waiting for their mother to die. Uh, but Uh, Then the second chapter starts from the point of view of several years later and is told from the viewpoint of the father, Ed Silver, Uh, uh, and it's titled April 1969, because that's when it takes place. And many of you won't remember this or were too young, but April 1969 was a pretty uh, revolutionary time in the United States civil rights demonstrations um, and uh, 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 anti-war demonstrations and uh, campuses being closed down and rock concerts. 69 was, this was before Woodstock and before Altamont, which both took place within a year of April, 1969. And kids were running to San Francisco. So in this chapter, uh, Ed Silver is trying to deal with all this. His younger son, Leon, only 17, ran away to San Francisco. His older son, who's now away at college, is very involved in the civil rights and the anti-war movement. And the father is afraid that that's going to ruin his son's future. He And he's against those politics. The father is really a kind of pre-Trumpite. So shall I start? Absolutely. Okay. So he's, he's talking about the fact that, uh, this, that his older son, Jules, may have risked his scholarship uh, leading a civil rights demonstration. Uh, and he starts, that's my definition of a putz. Besides, there's no chance his side is going to win, and the winners always write history. 
No one is going to remember this demonstration. Hell, no one is probably going to remember the civil rights or the anti-war movements at the end of the day. And even if they remember them, they'll think it's an aberration because the establishment is going to win and write the story. Take the Old Testament. It tells us how wonderful and pious David was, how wonderful Joseph and Jacob were. But they all won rivalries and therefore got to control the telling of the tale. Think about it. Samuel, the religious leader of the country and a very bright guy, selected Saul as king. Saul must have had some competence in matters important to the state, military and organizational prowess, or the ability to stir men's hearts to the defense of the 12 tribes. Undoubtedly a thoroughbred himself, David used the army of his country's enemies to take the throne, an entire horde of ringers, which is a hell of a lot worse than shaving points. David then sent his best general on a suicide mission so he could screw the guy's wife. Which of the two seems more legit, Saul or David? History presents David as a young, multi-talented genius, and Saul as a cranky old man, but that's clearly a whitewash. And we know that Ishmael fathered a nation even more fruitful than Isaac's, and thus was just as deserving of Abraham's favor, at least in the abstract. And we know that Esau was a great hunter, a skill greatly prized in early nomadic cultures. He had skills, yet history, written by Jacob's descendants, presents Esau as brutish compared to the sophisticated, cunning Jacob. There was a lot of sibling rivalry back then that determined the dispensation of flocks, lands, and slaves. Apart from inheritance, how else could a father reward a favorite? Winners and losers. We don't know what really happened in history because the winners sanitize their actions and denigrate the losers. The only thing we can be absolutely sure of is that Joseph really did fuck Potiphar's wife. I know I would have. <laughs> well, one of the things that made this guy a little bit unbelievable is after reading him in the first chapter, I'm thinking, I don't know if this guy's really paid this much attention to, to, to the Old Testament. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, but he does a pretty good job of, uh, you know, laying yeah. it out. And, right. and he does. <laughs> he could be so, he's so right about some things and so wrong about so many other things. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and well, I think the reader sees that. Let's talk about the uh, title of the book a minute, The Brother Silver. Um, uh, Shauna, who's our episode assistant, was curious to know if the title emulates the brothers Karamazov. Is that right? Uh, the Russian right. Right. Know, uh, right. No novel by Dostovsky. Yeah. Right. So, so the seeming allusion to it is helpful in making it uh, an attractive title, but in fact, that's not how the title developed. Hmm. First of all, there were four brothers Karamazov, or Karam Karamazov, who what is whatever right. it is, whatever right? it is, yeah, right. Uh, and there are only two brothers Silver. Uh, so what happened was, for years, I had another title, um, and I'll tell you what it was: Tinbad, which is based upon a section from the next to last chapter of Ulysses. He sailed with whom? With Sinbad the sailor and Tinbad the tailor and Ninbad the nailer and Quinbad the quailer. And then choice goes on forever and ever. Okay. 
And uh, so when the publisher of Owl Canyon Press uh, said he wanted to publish uh, uh, the novel, he said, you know, I really would like you to make only one change. And that's the title. <laughs> well, so, you know, one ch just one change. That's not bad, you know. For right, right. Well, there was another change that he wanted me to make uh, uh, in, in a stylistic change that I was going to make anyhow, because I'd been going back and forth in it between doing it this way or that way. And I presented him way B, and he said, no, I like it way A better. Since I couldn't decide, that was a no-brainer, too. And so if, if the publisher, after sending us out to 150 agents and 150 uh, publishing houses, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, when a publisher says, yes, I like it, but just change the title, I'm okay with that. Yeah, exactly. You know, I used to be in PR, and I've named things. I've named companies uh, uh, or manage the naming process. So I put together 20 names. I put together a core of 10 people, five of whom who had read uh, 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 various uh, drafts of the book and the other five who knew me well and asked them to uh, pick one of, uh, of three of the 20 names or four of the 20 names that they liked. Everyone picked the Brother Silver. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's good. So I knew I had a name, whether I liked it or not. Well, and I'm just going to tease out now because you mentioned uh, your your experience in public relations. Uh, listeners, we're going to have an episode um, on our Patreon channel that you can jump over and hear after this at uh, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, all one word. And it's going to be on book marketing from the perspective of an author who owns or has owned a PR agency, you know, for almost 30 years. And uh, we're going to actually talk about that topic from his perspective. But but back to the story just a second, Mark. Yeah. There, this book has, uh, it has humor. It has the unreliable narrator. It has these scenes like this. It's got another scene we're going to have you read in a moment. Uh, but it also has uh, a lot of trauma because the trauma sort of drives the, you know, what's happening to these young boys. And the backstory, as I understand it, is that, uh, you had some childhood trauma yourself. Uh, yes. can, can you speak to that and how that influenced your work here? Okay. Um, so I can speak to it from a couple of perspectives. Uh, the first is the book itself. And uh, there are many autobiographical elements. Because uh, uh, my brother and I did live through uh, major tr trauma uh, growing up. We did walk in on multiple suicide attempts of my mother. Um, uh, we did uh, witness drug abuse and violence. Uh, we were abandoned uh, uh, for a while by my father uh, for a couple of years there. And he was a brute anyhow and had some really weird ideas about human relationships. And so that part of it is autobiographical, but it's not completely an autobiography. And the further you get in the book, the less autobiographical it is. What's more, in the first chapter, it's I change many things uh, from what really happened to me. 
so the other thing is what did my childhood, how did that help me or hurt me right? And it hurt me right because I had a writer's block for a long time. I never had a problem writing for money. When I was a television news reporter, you know, I got the, I often got the, the lead stories that had to be turned around. Never had a problem writing anything for money, but for creative writing, I always had this writer's block tied to my childhood. And I had to overcome that. I had to overcome the shame and the desire that survivors have to kind of brush it aside and not think about it before I could uh, finish this book. And it took me some time to do that. So I know you wrote about this and uh, you talked about how uh, this affected your ability to interact normally with folks, but did the writing itself, I mean, once you kind of got going with it, did that help you through your healing process in any way? That's a very interesting question. I think it must have. I think it must have. Um, uh, and, uh, but I can't say specifically that certain things did. So, you know, when something is painful, you don't want to touch it, right? But when you look at something through the viewpoint of a character who you know isn't you, like this Ed Silver, the father, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? When then it's like prongs. Or when you set up a style, the style becomes so important that the, the, the subject matter just becomes raw material for the style, you know? Mm -hmm. Like you force everything into that sonnet. And so the writing of it, because it allowed me to work through the voice of other characters, gave me, and also to work through the language of other characters and a creative language, gave me the tongs I needed to pick up the, these hot mm. tamales that mm. were, you know, a mother's suicide attempt or watching one parent uh, beat up another or, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. things so, like that. So the storyline, it, it begins in the early 60s after Ed and Ethel divorce and Ed becomes an increasingly absent father. Leon retreats into depression while Jules is trying to maintain some level of normalcy. He, he, he does that for a while, but sort of comes to grip with it later, you know, in the book. Um, I'm wondering here if, you know, we look for protagonists and antagonists in novels, and uh, sometimes they can be a, a figure, sometimes they can be something else. And I'm just wondering if in this case, the antagonist is really more um, sort of the uh, the mental health uh, issues they had to work through, you know, the the fact that they, had, or the trauma itself, is the trauma the antagonist in this book? That's very interesting. I think the trauma is and the results of the trauma, mm. you yeah. know, but yeah, yeah, yeah they, because they always face the trauma yeah. and they're always reacting to the world through the lens of the trauma, you know, through the mechanism of the trauma. 
Well, let's do this. We promised our listeners another short mm-hmm. reading. Uh, this is from later in the book. Can you set up this and tell us yep. sort of where we yep. are and who's involved? Right. So this is this is uh, going to be just a little bit complicated. Uh, the last chapter is a very long last chapter that's done in irregular rhyming. Um, and sometimes, sometimes the rhyming is very clear and sometimes it's really embedded into the prose and you hardly notice it. And so it's Jules at the turn of the 20th of the 21st century looking back and he takes a trip back in time. Literally, he was successfully able to finally deal with his trauma by suppressing it completely. And he does this for 25 years. Then an event, his brother's death makes it come up again. And so he attempts to recapture his past by taking a trip and meeting people that he knew 25 years ago and lost contact with, Mm. including relatives, people he met when he hitchhiked, because uh, he did a, a, they both do a lot of hitchhiking in this movie, in the, not movie. <laughs> I'm looking you're, forward. You're, I'm you're really actually looking forward. That was a slip. That was a slip, a hopeful slip, right? That was a very hopeful slip, right? In, in, the, in, in the novel, they both do a lot of hitchhiking. Um, and so he's remembering past events and then talking to the people in the present. And so this is a friend of his named Vern, who is an African-American professor of mathematics at San Francisco State University. Back, and I guess it would have been 79, 80, that that takes place. And one afternoon, they get stoned. Uh, That part of the novel has a lot of marijuana use. And in uh, other parts of the novel, too. <laughs> and uh, they're drinking some whiskey or some vodka or something. And they're going through Jules's old 45s. And they run across Raindrops by D. Clark. Okay. And Jules says, I couldn't get enough of that song as a kid, I said. But now he's remembering but now i think it's crappy the bogus thunder in the background the flabby violins the sappy lyrics that sound like they're sung with a happy grin even though his heart is supposed to be broken completely fake not completely listen to the last four words just before the fade out in a blood quaking instant D captured the dark, God-forsaken history of my people in this land. He wails the pain of centuries, pain of smelling death and feces chained in the hull of a ship sailing west, pain of searing brand on thigh, of hours of cranking up a cotton gin, half dead from withstanding everyday daily whippings, of gawking without protest as your traffic children roll away from the slave mart in shotgun guarded carts, of knowing the master sticks it to his sweetheart whenever he wants to, the pain of acting deferential to people who reprimand him for his color, the pain of losing land he plowed for years to legal tricks, 
the pain of fear of seeming too proud or gabbing too loud, the fear of scaring white women with his looks, the fear of beatings, lynchings, firebombs, the pain of shame of a seat in the shabby, crowded, worse than hillbilly school at the chilly back of the bus, the cold outside the restaurant while they grill his grub, the pain of sniper bullets, rubber hoses, ugly curses, dirt-rubbed face, the pain of whispers that assume a genetic inheritance of thievery, laziness, incompetence, the pain of being forced by the record producer to smile all the while he sings of pain until the fade-out of an inane power ballad after two minutes of grinning through a sweet conflation of raindrops. It must be raindrops. It feels like raindrops against the rising obligato of the violins, calling forth a suddenly hoarse and harsh ear-splitting fog-cutting cry that forces centuries of the inhumane into four short words. It keeps on falling. He says all of that in three seconds. I hear all that in three seconds. Vern was expressing an immensely explosive anger, yet he seemed so self-composed. He never raised his voice, no matter how intense the discussion. Do you ever blow up and try to put your fist through the plasterboard or begin kicking the fence? It happens to me all the time, I asked. I can't afford to. Whether I'm going along to get along or resisting, no matter what I feel within, I have to stay under control or risk making things worse because of the color of my skin. I get to keep my self-respect that way, yes, but self-protection is a much greater reward especially when the pigs suspect you. Twice I've told cops to fuck themselves and fan the finger on their noses. They didn't flinch either time, completely deadpan. That's because every interview looks like the man. And maybe one day you'll be the man. I suppose you'll be a better man than the current man, but you'll still be the man. Yeah, so you you covered a lot. Uh, you do a lot with this book, and I'm wondering uh, th this: how long did this project take, Mark? From the very first thing that I wrote, 1976 was when I started it. Wow, I was 26 years old, and uh, I was on a Fulbright grant living in West Berlin, and I was supposed to be working on my PhD dissertation in comparative literature. Uh, but I wrote the second chapter substantially in 1976. I wrote a lot of it, especially a lot of the first chapter in 1984. The very opening of the last chapter is 1976, but then the rest of that is over the last couple of years, starting in 2016, I guess. Well, at this pace, when is your next novel going to come out? Hmm. <laughs> next year. Okay. You sort now, of ramp, you've ramped it up now, right? Yep. Now that I've started, I've broken through that writer's block. Plus, the next novel isn't about, doesn't have characters that remind me of my awful childhood. Okay. So it's a lot easier 
I'm about 20% done writing the first draft and it's virtually all outlined out. And I hope to have it done by the uh, middle of 2022, if not sooner. That's great. We're going to jump over in just a second to Patreon and talk further about this idea of marketing uh, books. Um, but before we do, uh, I want to ask one writing life question in the context of how long it took to put this together. Um, if you could tell your younger writing self on this particular book something that you think would have been helpful you know, to your younger writing self that might have helped you get through this uh, you know, maybe a little quicker, maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe just what would you tell your younger writing self now based on what you've learned about this process that would help guide that, that young person? It's interesting. I'd like to say just keep writing and don't worry about how you think it's going to sound and don't worry about your own private fears. Okay. Um, I think that would be it. Just to don't be afraid to take the leap. That's great. Well, look, uh, Mark, it's been great uh, having you on this regular edition of the podcast. I'm going to enjoy talking with you some more about this idea of book marketing from the perspective of someone who's been in the uh, public relation industry for a year and all the things you learned, things you thought you knew that you didn't know and everything that right. goes with that. But uh, thanks so much for being on Charlotte Rears podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been very enjoyable. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.